Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Raise the flag, the ranks tightly closed, the SA marches with calm, steady step. Comrades shot by the Red Front and reactionaries march in spirit within our ranks. Clear the streets for the brown battalions, clear the streets for the storm division man. Millions are looking upon the hooked cross, full of hope, the day of freedom and of bread dawns. For the last time, the call to arms is sounded. For the fight, we all stand prepared. Already, Hitler's banners fly over all streets. The time of bondage will last but a little while now. Those are the uh, English translation of the Horst Vessel song, which, Dominic, I think I'm correct in saying ended up kind of the anthem of Germany, didn't it, along with Deutschland über alles, uh, once the Nazis had taken power. And it was, of course, written by a man called Horst Vessel, so hence its name. Um, and Horst Vessel is pretty much um, the only time I've ever written about the rise of the Nazis because uh, it, he featured in Dominion. And as I was writing about Horst Vessel, I was kind of obviously looking at, you know, echoes of parodies of Christianity. Um, and I hadn't fully appreciated the background to the story, which is what this episode is basically about. So it's a, the process by which the Great Depression hits Germany, um, street fights between the Nazis and communists intensify. And towards the end of it, we we move towards Hitler actually taking power. Yes. So hello, everybody. Um, last week, we did two episodes um, about the rise of the Nazis. So the origins, the intellectual and political origins of Nazism and then the story of Hitler in the um, 1920s, or for much of the 1920s. And this episode is the sort of uh, the crunch point, I suppose, is the point at which the Nazis take power. So we left them with the Nazis as a small party, but expanding, particularly in the Protestant countryside, uh, in the late 1920s against the backdrop of the Weimar Republic, um, united under a leader in Adolf Hitler who has the gift of the gab and has become convinced that he is the man of destiny who will lead Germany to greatness. And Tom, you were very keen to talk about Horst Vessel. So Horst Vessel is a young man who joins the Nazi party in, I think, 1926. So it's around about the time that we ended the last podcast. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I just thought it would be interesting just to zoom in because we've been, you know, we, it's been a lot of kind of broad brush uh, high politics. And I think the Horst Vessel story kind of highlights quite a lot of these broader themes. And at the end of episode two, you were talking about how the Nazis had a particular appeal for the young. And Vessel absolutely illustrates that. So you talked about Himmler, who was born in 1900, but Vessel is born in 1907. So he's joining the Nazi party age 19. He is also, um, he's very middle class. His father was a, a Lutheran pastor. Um, and essentially, I think that, that Vessel 
discovers in the Nazis a sense of excitement and glamour and swagger and purpose that he is not finding in the church. In a previous generation, he might have done, but not now. Like a lot of the young people that you were talking about in the previous episode, he has a feeling that he has missed out on fighting in the Great War. He was also, again, quite like, you say, Goebbels or other other leading Nazis. He was not physically prepossessing as a, as a boy. He'd fallen off a horse and broken his arm. And so almost by way of compensation, he was obsessed with violence. He kind of taught himself martial arts, um, practiced boxing, all that kind of stuff. And he had this kind of, you know, going to school and then going on to university. He, he studies law in, in Berlin. He has this interest in street fighting. And when Goebbels comes to Berlin, Berlin is a very red Berlin. It's a very communist city. Goebbels recognizes in Vessel someone who can provide him with a spear point, driving it into the guts of the, you know, the, the communist areas of Berlin. And Vessel brings some of those kind of Lutheran qualities to it. So that, that song, the Horse Vessel song, it's written like a hymn. And Vessel is, is writing lots of these songs and he's kind of hiring musicians and they're marching through communist areas, playing these songs, getting into fights. And Vessel ends up being shot. He actually get, kind of gets shot in the face in his own room. And he kind of lingers in agony for several weeks and then dies. And Goebbels picks on him to play the role of a martyr. And I use the word advisedly because Goebbels, who comes from a Catholic background, deliberately echoes Christian iconography. He ends, you know, at, at the funeral service, he explicitly compares uh, Vessel to, to Christ. Just reading your notes, extraordinary. A man who calls out through his deeds, come to me, I shall redeem you. Yeah. A divine element works in him, making him the man he is and causing him to act in this way. One man must set an example and offer himself up as a sacrifice. I mean, it's explicit, isn't it? It's not even... It's absolutely explicit. Um, and I think that, you know, and in due course, Vessel will come to serve Nazis almost as a kind of God. You have girls in the 30s who, who go to kind of, you know, woods or the ruins of amphitheaters or whatever and make offerings to Vessel if they can't get pregnant. I mean, it's very, very odd. Incredible. At the Nuremberg rally, they sing, we don't follow Christ, we follow Horst Vessel. Yeah. So I, I think that that shows... The readiness of the Nazis to construct a mythology that will be appealing. And I think that Vessel's own life shows that a huge part of what the Nazis offer to young men who are looking for a sense of purpose is a sense of drama, of action, and the kind of thrill of violence. And all of this is obviously happening against the backdrop of the Great Depression, which, as conventionally told, is what helps bring the Nazis to power. And, and to what extent is that actually the case, Dominic? Well, as your story suggests, I think, Tom, the Nazis would have always had an appeal in the kind of traumatised, brutalised, very unhappy, neurotic landscape of 1920s Germany, even if the economy had been doing much better. So, you know, the people, are, somebody like Horst Vessel doesn't fight in the war, looking for meaning, looking for belonging. Christianity doesn't offer that, doesn't seem to offer that anymore. So it would have been a, a fringe appeal. But what transforms the Nazis' fortunes, I think, irrevocably, is the impact of the Great Depression. 
So Germany had, was always struggling in the 1920s, struggling with the, the burden of the First World War, as Britain is, actually. But, but Germany has to pay reparations. But Germany has to pay reparations. It's had their hyperinflation, for which there's no real British equivalent. Germany has begun to recover by the second half of the 20s, but it's done so very, it's very dependent on loans from American banks. Right. And so that makes it very, very susceptible to the, to the crash. Right. It's a terrible position to be in. So it's, uh, Germany's not unusual. Austria is the same, a lot of Central Europe. It's already got quite high unemployment by 1929, by the point at which you have the Wall Street crash in October 1929, which, I mean, you know, most of our listeners, I imagine, will be vaguely familiar with the stock market crashing, apocryphal stories, and they are apocryphal, of people leaping out of the windows of Wall Street buildings and so on. What, what happens, what definitely happens, though, is that American banks start to withdraw their money from Central Europe. Um, and, and that's quite a protracted process. So that takes about a, a, a year or so to really, um, for its, the full horror of the impact to become apparent. So, I mean, Horse Vessel is shot in the beginning of 1930. And at that point, the depression has, has not yet fully hit Germany. It fully hits in the spring and summer of 1931. So it's the collapse of the big Austrian bank, the Credit Anstalt, which I think at the time was the biggest bank in Central Europe. And then lot, takes lots of other banks with it. And so again, that pauperizes the middle class who've had their savings. Oh, with it. I mean, the stats are frightening. So about one in three workers registered workers is out of work in Germany by 1932. It's probably even worse in the big industrial heartlands in the Ruhr and Silesia. Um, I think I got this from Richard Evans's book. About 13 million people are in Germany at this point. So that's what, you know, a quarter, getting on for a quarter of the population or so, um, slightly less, are living in households where that are blighted by unemployment where they're either dependents of people who don't have a job or they don't have a job themselves. You get a half million people homeless, people turning in their droves to prostitution, to begging, to crime, and so on. And it's the criminality, isn't it, for the Nazis and indeed for the communists. Yes. Actually kind of heightens the, uh, the, the sense that the streets are a battleground. So Horst Vessel, somebody like him, I mean, he's been drawn into kind of paramilitary politics, which has been there since the end of the First World War in 1918. But of course, when you have so many unemployed young men, you say to them, here's a uniform, here's a, a truncheon or a, or, a, or a pistol, come into the streets, you know, join us. We are, I mean, that song that, that you, you, I mean, thank God you didn't sing it. Um, it's, but, it's but, you, like, but it's like a kind of hyper-militarized uh, Boy Scouts anthem. Exactly right. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. Um, Babylon Berlin, the TV series that we talked about, the German, brilliant German TV series we talked about in the last episode, captures this very well. That young men who are looking for something, who are sick of the old men's world, you know, somebody gives them a, a belt, excitement. a shirt, excitement, belonging, friends. The, the stormtroopers, they will go on camps and sit around the fire and sing songs and all of this sort of stuff. Now, the communists are doing that, this too. So communist membership trebles between 1929 and 1932. Unemployed, the unemployed in particular are drawn to communism. You can completely understand why. The leader of the Communist Party, sort of their answer to Hitler, if you like, is a man called Ernst Tellmann, who's a manual laborer from Hamburg. He, like Hitler, won the Iron Cross in the First World War. He's a, he's a pure classic communist revolutionary Stalinist. You know, he's taking orders from Moscow. He absolutely believes in revolution. He believes in smashing the bourgeois parties. The communists hate 
the Social Democrats and the parties of Weimar. Not, uh, you know, it's it's understandable why, because the Social Democrats had used the army against them in 1918, 1919. And so this is, this is key to understand, isn't it, that the Nazis are, so Horst Wessel is being sent in by Goebbels to, to rough up the communists and to provoke them and to generate street fighting against them. So for Horst Wessel and Goebbels, the communists are the main adversary. But for the communists, even though you know, they, they don't like the Nazis, if they're given the opportunity, they'll go up to Horst Wessel's room and shoot him in the face. But for them, in a way, the main enemy aren't the Nazis at all. It's the Social Democrats. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? It's it's they, kind think- of like um, people on the far left of the Labour Party disliking Blairites more than they dislike Tories. It is that. It is that in a way, Tom. I mean, it's a very sort of exaggerated and lurid version of that. So, the yes, the, I think the communists would say they'd say the Nazis are just a kind of efflorescence. The Nazis are just clowns and criminals. The real enemy are the bourgeois capitalists of the SPD and their allies, the liberals, the Catholic Centre Party. These are the people who have who are holding us down. These are the people who for whom the police work and all this kind of thing. And they're the people we must smash to build the workers' state. Yeah. And this is a tension that kind of goes back to Rosa Luxemburg and everybody who uh, her death in 1919, the, the communists blame on, on the, the social democrats. But presumably gets turbocharged by the experience of the Depression. It does indeed. Absolutely does. So 1929, in May 1929, there's a very famous incident shown in the series Babylon Berlin called uh, Bloody May, where the Berlin police, who are being controlled by the Social Democrats, they attack a communist demonstration. They kill 33 people and injure hundreds more. I mean, this for the communists is, you know, this inflames them against the Social Democrats still further. Now, of course, the interesting thing is the communists hate the bourgeois parties as much as they hate the Nazis. The bourgeois parties are the people who vote for them. If they are given a choice, if they had to choose between the Nazis and the communists, they, I think, would generally choose the Nazis because the communists are going to expropriate their property, create a, a revolution. You know, They think they're going to bring Stalinism. They look at the Nazis and they say, well, the Nazis probably talk very, you know, they're full of all this stuff and all this violence. But actually, if they got into government, they would probably take They won't them. knit your house. They won't, they won't confiscate your property. And probably they would work with conservative elites and it would actually all be fine. So, and so the, the effect of this, uh, a great, great sentence in Michael Burley's book, Third Reich, A New History. Um, the electoral profile of the National Socialist Party has been described as an integrative people's party with an accentuated middle class character or less pretentiously, as having the profile of a man with a pot belly. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's, I mean, it's definitely true that even though you have the antics of people like horse vessel being shot in the face and street fighting that by 1929, 1930 or so, the Nazis are beginning to win more kind of respectable votes. Now, all of that said, the Nazis still would not have got into power. I think had it not been for the fact that the Weimar elites commit probably the most flagrant and shocking act of political suicide in modern history. And what will follow is very complicated and intricate and involves all kinds of manoeuvring and faction fighting. But step by step, the people who should, as we said last time, the people who should be the guardians of Weimar democracy are actually digging its grave and indeed their own graves in some circumstances. So 
Should we get into that story, Tom? It's a complicated story. Are you, are yeah, you, yeah. Girding your loins. Yeah, let, let, let's gird our loins for this. So the, the process by which the Weimar Republic commits suicide against this backdrop of depression, of street fighting, of red on brown violence and brown on red violence. So terrible situation when really anyone with a, you know a concern for democracy should be manning the defences, and instead they basically kind of demolish the walls. They do. So the first blow is struck in March 1930. So up to this point, the government had been run by a grand coalition under a guy called Hermann Müller, who was the um, who is from the Social Democrats, and it's a coalition of the Social Democrats, the Liberal Parties, and the Catholic Centre Party. But that, for various complicated reasons, which we don't need to go into, that coalition falls apart. And at that point, there is no majority in the Reichstag. Now, President Hindenburg, the World War One general, who we talked about last time, who is the the Prussian walrus, the Prussian walrus, as you described him. <laughs> I said he was he was cut from oak, but you described him as a walrus. He's both. He's an oak, a wooden walrus. Yeah. He and his circle have never liked democracy, never liked all the parliamentary horse trading. They distrust it. They think it's un-German. They think it's weak. They think it betrays the legacy of Bismarck and the Kaiser, and they think this is a good chance to start building you know, the road towards the return of a proper authoritarian regime. And the people in the army like this, they think, yes, because we want to rearm. We hate the treat we hate the Treaty of Versailles. We we hate having to answer to politicians. You know, the more we can sort of facilitate this, the better. So Hindenburg and the army generals around him, they agree that basically the answer is stop subordinating everything to parliamentary politics. Let's have a cabinet of experts. You pick a guy from the Reichstag, and they will rule by emergency decree. So this is the one that um, right from the beginning had been used. Yeah, that Ebert, the Social Democrat, had used it against the left in the early 20s. It's this sort of ticking time bomb in the Weimar Constitution. I guess probably a lot of constitutions have similar emergency provisions. But the Germans have been getting used, they've got addicted to using this. Hindenburg thinks we'll rule by decree. We won't need to worry about parliamentary majorities. So he brings in a chap from the Catholic Centre Party, the, the Zentrum, whose name is Heinrich Brüning. Brüning is from Munster. He's from a very devout Catholic family. He's a very, very clever man. He's very austere, kind of bald head, glasses. Um, he'd studied, interestingly, at Strasbourg, Bonn, and the London School of Economics, Tom. And um, his thesis, his PhD thesis, was on British railways. Um, so well so clearly clearly germany was doomed then (laughs) Um, so yes so he yet another iron cross winner in world war one very patriotic a monarchist a believer in the kaiser um a very a sort of small c conservative man very very serious catholic attack specialist he's got a bit of um, associate of the rest is history, Antonio Salazar. Ah, yes. About him, I think it's yes. fair to say. And in fact, there's a couple of Salazarist kind of characters in this. So he's very reactionary, in other words. He's pre- he is pretty reactionary. His party is normally the centre party, but he's pretty much on the right of that party. It's been moving to the right anyway. And he... Is he I mean, is he as, as kind of, you know, back to 1450 as Salazar? No, he's not. He's, he's, he's not, not quite uh, that he, bad. No, he's not okay. quite that bad at all. Um, but he is austere. He's re- his instincts are quite authoritarian. So he starts, he restricts the freedom of the press quite early on. His economic policy is very deflationary. So what that when means is- When you say is, he restricts the, the press, 
is he yeah. restricting just the left wing press or all the press? Yes, yes. So when so all of Bruning's kind of law and order measures and things, they tend to be directed more at the left than the right. And this is that fear of communism thing. This underestimation of the Nazis and the belief, very common among what you might call the sort of the respectable parliamentary parties, that the real threat is communism. Yeah. You can understand why they think that, Tom. They want to protect their property and the class system and all of that stuff. They're also they're looking at what's happened in the Soviet Union and they think, Christ, that's the last thing we want to happen here. So yeah. this is understandable but fatal. Um, Bruning's economic policy is very deflationary. He doesn't believe in tax and spend. He doesn't believe in what we'd now call Keynesianism, so public works, all of that stuff. He says, listen, in the midst of the Depression, the thing to do is batten down the hatches, stabilize your economy, cut spending. Incidentally, this is exactly what the British are doing, so under Ramsay MacDonald and Stanley Baldwin. So this is not you know, unheard of by any means. It's kind of what Herbert Hoover was doing in the United States. Let's not print money. We've learned the lesson of printing money and the hyperinflation. So that's the last thing we do. The result of this is he cuts lots of people's job ben- unemployment benefits, pushes lots more people into poverty, makes himself the most unpopular chancellor um, since the beginning of the Weimar Republic. So this is very Herbert Hoover. Very Herbert Hoover. Exactly what's happening in the United States at the same time. Pretty much what actually happens in Britain under Ramsay MacDonald that splits the Labour Party. So you can sort of see how we were talking so much about how much this story is unique to Germany. There are so many shared elements, but because it's happening in Germany with this street violence, with this traumatised, embittered population, it all just takes on a different character. And the framework of democracy starting to creak under the pressure. Starting to crumble. Yeah. Um, Bruning decides... He's going to ask Hindenburg in the autumn of 1930 to dissolve the Reichstag and to call an election. Ian Kershaw calls this a decision of breathtaking irresponsibility, not the last that will be made in this podcast. So, because Bruning thinks, you know what, Bruning thinks the German people will never vote for these clowns, the Nazis. And, you know, hopefully I can get some kind of cobble together, some kind of coalition and he he also thinks, in the worst comes to the worst, Hindenburg will always protect the constitution. That's what he's sworn to do. He's a dutiful Prussian officer. He wouldn't do anything stupid. Again, a, a terrible miscalculation. So we're plunged into an election campaign. You talked about a horse vessel being shot at the beginning of 1930. Throughout 19, and the, the funeral and Goebbels' speech, throughout 1930, the Nazis have basically whipped themselves into this frenzy marches parades because that's what that's what goebbels is famous for and he's you know the horse vessel's funeral exemplifies that that they're very very good at making a show putting on a show and in the context of this bleakness unemployment people with nothing to do a party that puts on a show and is promising national renewal you can you know you can without presumably any kind of detailed policy no detail so it's the classic populist party program Something for everybody. No specifics. Cake all round. The, they, they slightly downplay. So the anti-Semitism never goes away. But the key thing in the autumn of 1930 is they say, it's the system that has failed you. The system has let you down. The established politicians, what a waste of space they are. You know, they have betrayed you ever since 1918. And what we offer 
is an end to class politics. The communists are giving you class politics. We'll end that. We're all Germans. We don't even see the classes. National unity, a, a racial community united and working together for greatness. They have sort of films. They have brass bands. They have parades pumping the stuff out. And clearly, a lot of people, it's what they want to hear. So you have the election results. They are a terrible blow to the Weimar system. It's not because the Social Democrats or the Catholic Centre Party lose votes. They're pretty much where they were. It's that the established mainstream, respectable, conservative parties, the bourgeois parties, the, the bourgeois parties, the kind of parties that you wouldn't vote for in a depression, because they're the parties that you of, of the sort of of the rich of the upper middle classes, they are just pretty much annihilated. The communists go up from fifty four seats to seventy seven seats. But the big, big winners are the Nazis. Up from a million votes last time, fringe party. They're now on six and a half million. They're up from 12 seats to 107 seats. And if you look at the kind of people who voted for them, we talked last time about how they'd started to expand among kind of Protestant farmers, people in North Germany, in Schleswig-Holstein, in Pomerania, in Hanover, and all these kind of provincial kind of places. They're not, they're now beginning to win m many more kind of respectable sort of, um, Michael Burley's pot belly, um, yes, symbol. Yes. So teachers are Protestant priests, you know, people who see them as an antidote to communism. So they're a, a social protest party. They also crucially, and this is again a nice nod to your horse vessel introduction, youngsters, young people, young first time voters. So one in four Nazi voters in 1930 have never voted before. So anybody who thinks, oh, young people have a predisposition to be left-wing, I mean, this is a, an absolute kind of rebuke to that. So this is a terrible, terrible result for Weimar. You've got many more. You've got 77 communists who hate the Weimar Republic sitting in the Reichstag, and you have 107 national socialists. And the only bigger party than that are the social democrats themselves. It's not just that you've had all this sort of street violence. It's that actually the language and the tone of the street violence is now in the central arena of politics. So the Reichstag itself, instead of being all these sort of men who basically all look the same, grey men in kind of... In frock coats. In frock coats yeah. and sort of excessively tight collars, it's now there's a lot of shouting and shaking of fists and... And uniforms. People calling each other vermin, all of that sort of stuff, exactly. And and that, that dual strategy the Nazis have been adopting of, of uh, the ballot box and the street violence are now eliding, essentially. Exactly. So the violence, yeah. the violence has been imported into the heart of the, the Weimar Republic, the Weimar system. Exactly right. And the Weimar system at this point, I think you could argue, is it dead at this point? Whether Weimar itself is dead is an interesting question, but I think it is definitely seriously ailing. And as we will see after the break, what makes things worse is that the politicians continue to make extremely bad decisions and bad choices that basically condemn the patient to a swift and pretty miserable death. So join us after the break for, for the death of Weimar. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. 
and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. Um, we promised you before the break the death of Weimar. And Dominic, I, I mean, there's a terrible, tragic sense in which kind of Weimar dies of the very political complications with, with which it's been wrestling throughout its existence. The Nazis don't storm to power wielding guns or marching on the capital or anything like that. They do it by means of backroom deals, election gambits, all the kind of things that we would recognize from a functioning democracy, but they're doing it with the aim of, of, of terminating democracy. And this is the issue with which in the 21st century, certainly in the 2010s and 2020s, people have started to wrestle, isn't it? What do you do in a democracy with somebody who is competing, who is playing, you know, as a contestant, but is determined to destroy the very game in which they are playing? How do you, how do you exclude them? How do you control them? Do you try to tame them? Do you work with them? Would you just say never? So this is the problem that is facing the, and of course, for the Weimar parliamentarians, they have no precedent. You know, they, there is no. Right. Yes. So, so for us, this is the paradigmatic political morality story, but they yeah. don't have that morality story. I mean, I no. suppose the only morality story they would have would be the end of the Roman Republic, something like that. But I don't think people are making that comparison actually in the. Well, some are. Um, so the Roman Revolution, the famous book by Syme about the collapse of the Roman Republic is yes. being written against exactly this backdrop. Yes, that's a very good point, Tom. So I think I think people are kind of vaguely aware of it, but obviously it's inadequate to compare to the moral yeah. horror uh, for us. So, yeah, I mean, I think that is always a really important thing to bear in mind when looking at this story is that we have the example of the Nazi takeover, but people living through the Nazi takeover obviously didn't. Yeah, so, so almost none of the characters that we're going to meet in the second half take the Nazis seriously. They just don't see, they haven't, they maybe haven't read Mein Kampf. They see them as violent clowns who they can use. So Chancellor Heinrich Brüning, the sort of austere Catholic um, British Railways enthusiast who we talked about in the first half, he has now has no real chance of a majority. In fact, there is no majority for anything at all in the Reichstag from September 1930 onwards. So increasingly in the next few years, you see it endlessly being suspended or adjourned, or when it does meet, it's just a lot of shouting and and um, sort of disputation. And so how is the country being governed? So it's being governed by decree. Brüning is governing it by decree using Hindenburg. So basically the way that works is the Reich Chancellor, which is Brüning, goes to President Hindenburg and says, under Article 48, you know, I would like you to do this. And Hindenburg basically says yes. And who is kind of holding the strings of who? Well, this is always a little bit unclear. Everybody is trying to pull the strings of everybody else. And here there's a really interesting character enters the story. So there's a rising figure who's a kind of intermediary between politics and the army. And this is a chap called General Kurt von Schleicher. He's a Prussian, you'll be surprised to hear, uh, born in 1882. Uh, he's clever. He's a great intriguer. Everybody knows that Schleicher loves intrigue. He's always sort of whispering in back rooms. He's a very political general. He's worked his way up the ladder. Um, I read in the Bodleian Library, Tom, 
Uh, it says Schleicher was well known for a sense of humor, his lively conversational skills, his sharp wit, and his habit of abandoning his upper class aristocratic accent to speak his German with a salty working class Berlin accent full of risque phrases that many found either charming or vulgar. So I read that on Wikipedia, so it's almost certainly not true. Um, but, but it's a nice, it's a nice, nice pen portrait, isn't it? It's a nice pen portrait. Trotsky, of all people, said Schleicher was a question mark with the epaulets of a general. That's a very good quote. Um, he's a Prussian general who's just scheming the whole time. Too clever by half. But everybody knows it. This is the trouble. Yeah. yeah. What he seems to want is a military dictatorship of some kind, an authoritarian vehicle. And he is playing off Hindenburg, um, the politicians. He's, he's talking to the Nazis quite early on. Presumably the example of Bismarck is, is hanging over this. I suppose he might see himself as a bit of a Bismarck. I mean, what the army wants is they want a government that will allow, that will basically, they, they won't be bothered by politicians anymore. They'll be able to rearm and make Germany great again. Yeah. Yeah. Get out the tanks. And that probably will involve wars. But I don't think people in the army think, let's wage a massive world war and take on all the, you know, all the old allies again for round two. They, they think, let's fight the Poles and get, yeah. you know, Danzig. Have a, have a crack at the Czechs. Exactly. That's and and we'll feel good about ourselves. I think that's what they they they're after. Now, Hinden, President Hindenburg is eighty four. His uh, presidential term is up in nineteen thirty two. Um, he he toys with standing down, but such is the sort of chaos and confusion of the time that it's fairly easy for his advisor to persuade him to stand again. So now we have this crazy situation where Hindenburg. The epitome of the Prussian reactionary is standing again for the presidency. And his two big rivals in the second round, so the first round is sort of ambiguous, so this goes to a second round. His two big rivals are Telman, the leader of the communists, and Hitler, the leader of the Nazis. So what that means, it's a, it's a bit like <laughs> yeah. a supercharged version of those kind of Macron-Le Pen or Chirac-Le Pen elections where loads of people who normally would hate the mainstream person have to hold their nose and vote for them because they can't stand the extremist alternatives because hindenburg who hates weimar yeah. is now is now the 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 candidate for weimar exactly right yeah exactly the social democrats um they describe him as the embodiment of calm and constancy of manly loyalty and devotion to duty a man who's on whose work one can build a man of pure desire and serene judgment i mean that's a bonkers Madness. thing to say because yeah. hindenburg regards thinks the social democrats are absolute you know and they he, know it he yeah he holds them in very low regard so it goes to a second ballot and for the first time hitler the Nazis import American-style campaign techniques. So this is where he, he gets on planes, isn't he? He gets on a plane. For the first and, time. And, yeah. and this is the interesting thing, isn't it, about the Nazis, about fascism generally, how it's simultaneously backward-looking and incredibly futuristic. So same with Mussolini, love it. Yeah. Planes and cars and things, yeah. Ma ma men of action. So Hitler yeah. in his sort of raincoat is always leaping on and off aeroplanes and going to address huge crowds that, of course, Goebbels has with his his bohemian theatricality has kind of prepped them with all kinds of bands and displays and spectacle and all this kind of thing people are very very excited by this they're very good at democracy right. i mean that's 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 the, the weird thing the, that's the, the irony of it they they they're deploying all kinds of tricks and techniques that are still being deployed to this day yeah i guess that i guess that's true i mean as we said last time if you watch uh, lenny riefenstahl triumph of the will you watch nazi rallies 
you know, do political party conferences in Britain or American presidential conventions in the United States, do they learn those techniques? Of course they do. They absolutely do. So Hitler gets 37% in that presidential election, 13 million votes. Hindenburg um, gets 53%. That's actually pretty weak by Hindenburg, given he is the titanic war hero and he's got almost all the the sort of the conventional parties behind him and actually in some parts of the protestant countryside Schleswig-Holstein Pomerania Hitler actually wins Hitler beats Hindenburg such is the sense of of anger about the depression and desperation for something new so it's pretty clear that the the wind is in the Nazi sails and actually Bruning who's still hanging around um, who's been, I think it's fair. To, I, I don't actually, Richard Evans, for example, is very harsh on Bruning. He just regards Bruning as an absolute waste of space. I think that's a tiny bit harsh, but it's fair to say Bruning has made a series of very bad decisions. He basically gets booted out at the end of May 1932. So now Hindenburg needs a new chancellor. He's, he's not going to pick Hitler. Hitler's an extremist, a rabble rouser, a demagogue, a mere corporal. He's not going to pick Hitler. What he, he picks a man, the ultimate sort of establishment man, and this is a chap called Franz von Papen. Well, you've give, got a brilliant description in your notes. Looks like a greyhound or a man from the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> yeah, there's people listening from the Daily Telegraph. I don't know, do they look like greyhounds? Maybe they do. Well, so, you're thinking of Charles Moore, someone like that. Yeah, I actually, you know, kind you know of the tall, columnist, thin, angular. Do you know the columnist Tim Stanley? Yes. I knew Tim Stanley when he was a very young man. Uh, I think Franz von Papen looks like a, an older, more Germanic version of Tim Stanley. Tim Stanley has quite vibrant hair. Yeah, Buffon, I would say. Buffon hair. Tom, uh, does does, pa- uh, no. does Franz von Papen? No, but there's something in the features. I can't okay. really describe right. it. Okay. Listen, okay. I mean, this is of no use to most people who don't know who either <laughs> of these people are. But anyway, um, it's good to find light amid the darkness. Uh, Papen is a, an aristocrat. He's from the Catholic Centre Party. Again, very Catholic. Bizarrely, he had been expelled from the United States for spying during the First World War. Um, he married the daughter of a rich industrialist. He's rich, so he's rich. He's very well connected. He's posh. Um, he knows everybody. He has contacts. So he's in very, every, very different to Hitler. Then, completely different, utterly I mean, different. Uh, yeah, um, he knows lots of people in the army. He knows lots of people in politics and big business. Uh, interestingly, we talked about Bruning and and uh, our old. Chum Antonio Salazar um, from the Portuguese episodes. Franz von Papen has a lot of this going on as well. It, there's a sort of Catholic political authoritarianism very common in Europe in the 1920s and 1930s. I mean, von Papen and the people around him actually talk about a new state, which is the same, you know, they call it the Estado Novo in Portugal. They dream of this kind of Catholic order returning to Germany. Of course, it's never going to happen because there's so many Protestants in Germany. But anyway, Hindenburg makes him chancellor and he fills his cabinet with other people like him. So people call it the cabinet of barons. I mean, some <laughs> people call it the cabinet of experts, which is very sort of anti-Gove. But I think the cabinet of barons is a better. That's much funnier. I mean, I suppose darkly funny. Well, you'd think of a baron as kind of ruthlessly efficient, wouldn't you? But these barons are yes. all, I mean, they're like the red loose. baron. Yeah. Van Papen is in. I think it's fair to say he, like General Schleicher, He's an intriguer, and I don't believe he has the slightest idea how to get Germany out of the mess that it is in. An effete Machiavel, yeah, uh, Burley uh, describes him as. That is brilliant. I mean, that is exactly what – he's a dilettante. 
he's he's a man from the Daily Telegraph. There's a brilliant example in Richard Evans's book. He says one of Papen's great initiatives is to abolish the guillotine, which has been used since the French Revolution, because he regards it as too newfangled, and to replace it with the traditional Prussian handheld axe for executions. That's very I mean, Daily Telegraph, isn't it? Very Daily Telegraph, <laughs> but it's absolutely not Germany's priority in no. 1932. No. Papen and Schleicher, so they team up for the time being. The intriguing general and the intriguing um, effete, what was he in effete? Machiavel. Yet again, they persuade President Hindenburg to dissolve the Reichstag and call new elections. I mean, why people keep on doing this? This is a great error. I mean, even though the sort well, of more that's the definition of famously, the definition of insanity is to keep repeating the same mistake over and over again, expecting it to come out differently. I mean, it's, 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 it's strange when you read the accounts, especially by kind of, you know, sort of left leaning historians like Richard Evans, who keep saying, they keep basically saying, why do they not just prorogue the parliament forever and impose some kind of authoritarian rule? Why do they keep making these terrible mistakes? Anyway, they because do presumably this. Presumably, the, the alternatives, as we now see, is a kind of authoritarian military dictatorship or the yeah. Nazis. And yeah. because we know which is the worst of those. Yeah, you're right. We're tempted to see it as as the worst of all fates, but they, you know, to repeat, they don't know that, do You're they? You're right, of course. But they're also, I mean, they do want a military dictatorship, but they're kind of frightened that they won't get to do it themselves, that somebody else will take it over. They're also frightened of alarming the public and provoking civil war. So they want to get, they want to put themselves in a position where nobody, there won't be anybody in the street complaining, where everybody would be delighted, where they've got maybe backing in the Reichstag for it. They call new elections. They think, they, they're conscious of Hitler and his strength, and they think to themselves, listen, we don't want to really alienate him. So they lift, there's been a ban on the stormtroopers marching openly. They say, we'll lift this ban because this will appease him, buy him off and maybe what make him What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Well, almost immediately in July 1932, there's enormous fighting in a place called Altona in Prussia, which is near Hamburg, between the stormtroopers and the communist Red Front. And 18 people are killed and hundreds of people are injured because the police lose control and they start shooting wildly. And Papen then makes another of these terrible, terrible mistakes. Instead of doing what he should have done, which is to ban all the paramilitaries completely, he he thinks, great, I can use this as an opportunity to seize control of the state government of Prussia. So Prussia is by far, Prussia is the England of Germany. It dominates Germany. It's by far the biggest state. If you control Prussia, you don't quite control the lot, but you're a lot of the way there. And Prussia is run by the Social Democrats. And basically, von Papen and Hindenburg dissolve by emergency decree the Social Democratic. They take over the Social Democratic government of Prussia. They kick out the Social Democrats from their great stronghold. And von Papen will use this. Um, as his own personal fiefdom. And this is a disaster for democracy because here you have the central government unconstitutionally effectively getting rid of the biggest party and the, and the social democrats do nothing to resist it. Why do they not resist it? Because they're worried about civil war as well. They are exactly the social democrats are paralyzed. But they've been a bit, they've, they've been paralyzed the whole way through, haven't they? I mean, they've been they kind have. of sitting there waiting for the revolution to come and nothing ever happens. It's that, but also they've known from the very beginning of Weimar that lots of people in the army don't like them, that there are lots of reactionaries who think they're illegitimate. I mean, they've known this from even before the First World War. And at this key moment, they do nothing. They don't have a general strike. They're being robbed of their heartland 
you know, I'm trying to imagine an analogous situation. It's as though there was an elected English government that the Westminster Parliament suddenly kicked out and said, we'll run it ourselves, you know, and in a context of street violence. And that government did nothing to about it. Didn't say, oi, you know, that this is illegal. Take to the streets, have a general strike or something. So and I said they can't have a general strike because unemployment is so high that, you know, people aren't going to down tools to go out on the streets. So as, as Richard Evans says, Parpin's coup dealt a mortal blow to the Weimar Republic. It destroyed the federal principle and opened the way to the wholesale centralization of the state. Which the Nazis are all about. Of course. Because if you have a Fuhrer. So if the Nazis ever do take power, they can follow that precedent. So the election. This election in July 1932 that von Papen has called um, takes place in a context of where we began with Horst Wessel and the street violence. This is now worse than ever before. So Hitler is again flying around, addressing different venues. The the propaganda is more aggressive than ever. I mean, Richard Evans is brilliant on this, actually. He says, um, every poster, no matter what party it's for, basically looks the same. It's a, it's a giant, half-naked male worker smashing his adversaries. He says, all over Germany, electors were confronted with violent images of giant workers smashing their opponents to pieces, kicking them aside, yanking them out of parliament, or looming over frock-coated and top-hatted politicians who are almost universally portrayed as insignificant and quarrelsome pygmies. And of course, if everybody's doing that, it plays into the hands of the people who do it best. Of course, yeah. And that's the Nazis. Yeah. So they run, yet again, they say... And the Nazis are saying... What what is their policy? What is their policy to their political opponents? Are they saying we'll put them in concentration camps? We'll ban them? Are, are they? They're, they're, they're never that? so explicit. They're never so explicit. They talk in abstractions. They say we'll end the parliamentary pygmies and their okay. you know bickering, national unity, national rebirth. Down with the Jewish financiers. Down with the communists. Down with the November. Right, criminals. but when they say down with the communists, what are they saying they're going to do to the communists? They're not. They're, they're not specific. They're never specific. So if, even if you read Mein Kampf, Tom, I mean, Hitler is all generalities. It's all kind of the language of the, the medical language that we've talked about a lot in this series, or, or the sort of slightly religious language that you are obviously familiar with from your stuff with Horst Vessel. You know, that sort of um, talk of the talk of rebirth and national salvation. It's all that sort of stuff. And, and, and the, that election, 31st of July, it is an absolute disaster for the mainstream and a victory for the extremes. So the Nazis double their vote, 6 to 13 million. They're now by far the biggest single party in the Reichstag, 230 seats. The communists also increase their vote. They're on 89 seats. There is a sense, however, this is as good as it will ever get for the Nazis. You know, this was their great that they've hit, they've hit the glass ceiling. They've probably hit a ceiling. So even Goebbels in his diary says, you know, we've got 37% of the vote. It's probable we've got as many people who will ever vote for us in a kind of free election. So this is the point at which we should become a party of power. We should enter government. The issue is that they they don't want to enter government as anybody else's partner. Well, because Hitler can't, can he? If he's no, you're right. Proclaiming himself the Führer, this man of destiny, this kind of Wagnerian hero, yeah. he can't sit down with all the frock coated pygmies. Yeah. And behave like exactly. any other politician. Exactly right. I think you're absolutely right, Tom. I think um, if he if he's got this sacred destiny to lead Germany into a national revolution, how can you do that if you're sitting with the very yeah, people? So he st- he starts to have secret talks with General Schleicher about doing a deal and becoming Chancellor. 
But for various reasons, those this is in August 1932. For various reasons, those talks run aground. One reason is that there's yet more extreme street violence. Parpon has just announced the death penalty for all political crimes, basically to use with, with an communists. Axe, with a presumably with, with an axe, fashion, yes. Prussian axe. Um, he means this. So that's to, something to cheer the traditionalists up. Just to, yeah. To try the letter writers for the day, so will be delighted with that. Um, Papen wants this, uh, he tends to use this against the communists. However, the first crime that happens within hours of the law being passed is a load of Nazi brown shirts killing a communist in an upper Silesian village, and five of them are sentenced to death. Hitler goes absolutely mad and says, How can you work with the how can I work with anybody who sentences our people to death? They're not criminals, they're they're fighting for the fatherland. Against this background, Hindenburg, Hindenburg still has slightly cold feet about dealing with. I mean, Hindenburg is, what did I say last time? He was 84. Now he's, I mean, he's, he's 85, <laughs> 90, going on 127. <laughs> yeah. He's still a bit iffy about this. He has a key meeting on the 13th of August, 1932, with Hitler, the presidential palace. He says, I want you to serve under Franz von Papen. Hitler says, no, 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 I want to be chancellor. I have to be chancellor. I'm leading the biggest party. And Hindenburg says no. And, and he says something which, you know, he should say. He says, I will not hand over um, the Reich to one party that is so intolerant and that encourages violence. I, I will not do it. And the meeting lasts just 20 minutes and Hitler goes out, furious that Hindenburg has said no. It's, that meeting is largely forgotten today. In his biography, Ian Kershaw says, that should have been that yet again. That was Hitler's chance, and it was gone. Is that when Hitler plunges into his big depression? I think. Well, yeah, I guess he does plunge into a big depression then. Yes, because he mean, feels he's, he's had his chance, and it slipped through and his fingers. And, and it's and yeah, and he's blown it. Well, it's not that he's blown it; it's that the one man he that he couldn't circumvent, the war hero, the one man who really is, you know, the guardian of the constitution. If he can't persuade Hindenburg to give him a chance, he has no hope. Unless he sort of kills Hindenburg or, or something, or Hindenburg waits till he's dead. But if he waits till he's dead, Germany will have recovered from the depression by then, or be in the recovery, and the Nazis' momentum will have passed. So you, that should be that for Hitler, but of course it isn't. So what happens next is pure intrigue. Um, Papen has a plan that he will, let's just dissolve the Reichstag forever, let's just get rid, and use uh, Hindenburg's presidential emergency powers to rule by decree, and that will pave the way for an authoritarian regime that we've always dreamed of, that we've wanted since 1918. There's an incredible moment. It's pure parliamentary drama. Von Papen goes to the Reichstag on the 12th of September 1932 to dissolve it, to basically set this in train. But before he can do that, the communists place a vote of no confidence in the government. And to von Papen's horror and fury, the Nazis, the biggest party who, can, who are basically running it, so Goering is the sort of president of the session, Goering says, we'll vote on the no confidence thing first. They vote on it, and they, the no confidence wins by 512 votes to 42. So Papen and his government are completely... Okay. Well, that's a, a ringing defeat, isn't it? Yeah, a very ringing defeat. They're completely humiliated. How can you now dissolve it? and rule by decree when you've been so completely rebuked and it's shown that you have no no democratic legitimacy at all. And so Parpen and co, they, they kind of lose their bottle. And yet again, they say, well, we'll have another election. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll bang my head against this door again. 
everybody is sick of elections by now. Actually, the Nazis now are beginning to drop. This is the incredible thing, Tom. The Nazis took power after they were yeah. dropping. Yeah. Their vote drops from 13.7 million votes to 12.7 million. They lose 44 seats. They are still the biggest party, but now they are smaller than the Social Democrats and the Communists combined. The Communists are going up all the time, by the way. They're now up to 100. But the Communists and the Social Democrats won't work with each other. They'll never work together. They hate each other. More than they hate the Nazis. Well, is it more than they hate the Nazis? As much as, I think it's yeah. certainly fair to say. So what happens now? Total stasis, nobody knows, and just pure factionalism. So Papen and Schleicher, so the effete Machiavel and the intriguing general, they've kind of fallen out with each other. They both want to be running Germany. They're more interested basically in their own personal fortunes than they are in thinking about what the Nazis truly represent. Schleicher says to Papen, you've got to go, mate. The army's not going to back you anymore. So Papen resigns. There's then two weeks of sort of general intrigue. Finally, Schleicher, the general, takes on the chancellorship himself. It's not really what he wanted. I think he wanted a puppet to do it for him. Hindenburg, by now, is very distrustful of General Schleicher. He thinks mm, General Schleicher has been plotting against Papen all this time. Schleicher opens talks with the Nazis. Uh, he appeals to Hitler's, I suppose you could say almost Hitler's rival within the Nazi party, Gregor Strasser. Who's tempted? Such to, a dangerous thing to be. Very dangerous thing to be, as General, as Gregor Strasser will discover. Strasser is tempted, uh, but the Nazis say no. You can't go into. You can't do this without Hitler. So he ends up resigning all his posts and leaving the Nazi Party. Inside the Hindenburg circle, there are all talks the whole time. What on earth are we going to do? Who's going to run the country? And there are lots of conservatives around Hindenburg who say you can't trust General Schleicher. You know, von Papen was quite good. Get him back. You know, more of the stuff with the axe. Bring, well, I mean, he's conservative. We can trust so him. They we never can work think, with him. they never think, why don't we bring the Kaiser back? No, I think the Kaiser is completely. Uh, so he's off in Holland, isn't he? He's off in Holland, becoming very anti Semitic. Well, there's so the Kaiser, guy. who previously, in his previous appearances and the rest of his history, has been very much a comic figure. Um, I think it's fair to say that against this backdrop, it's hard to see him in quite the same entertaining light as uh, as previously. So the Hindenburg Circle decide, okay, let's talk to the Nazis after all. And they do it through a pre the press baron, Alfred Hugenberg, nationalist press baron, who I talked about in the previous podcast. Von Papen is the you know this great intriguer. He is the key figure. They have talks with Hitler, and they say, maybe we'll put you in as chancellor after all. But most of your cabinet have to be conservatives, not Nazis. Meanwhile, they hear talks that Schleicher maybe General Schleicher may be planning some sort of coup. So they're very exercised by this. They say, we must hurry, we must hurry. We must get, you know, sort this out so that Schleicher doesn't get in, in instead. I mean, it's pure court politics. The ideological divisions between yeah. Hindenburg, yeah. Papen, and Schleicher are minimal. It's all Game of Thrones. Yeah, It's very Game of Thrones. And, and Ian Kershaw says in his um, biography, you know, even at this point, if they had basically stopped intriguing against each other, if Hindenburg had just said, listen, this is a shambles, let's dissolve the Reichstag, Go on, Schleicher, have a go, run the country, rearm, do what you like, be a bit authoritarian. The Nazi regime could have been averted. But again, they don't know. No. Schleicher that thinks. That is a worse alternative. No, they don't. Because Schleicher thinks, you know what? The Nazis maybe aren't so bad. I'll probably end up running the army. The Italy army will run things anyway. So, you know, who cares? Yeah. And von Papen, he is convinced that he's been chancellor already. He thinks, you know, Hitler, this two bit, 
Austrian. It's fine. I'll run. I'll be his vice chancellor and I'll run things and the cabinet will be full of my friends. So it is that on the 22nd of January, uh, 1933, there is a crucial secret meeting between Hitler and Papen and Hindenburg's son, Oscar. It's at that meeting they do the deal and they agree that Hitler will be the chancellor and Papen will be his deputy. And Dominic, do you know what else happens on the 22nd of January, 1933? Is it some test match? No. Hitler goes to the grave of Horst Vessel because he hadn't, Hitler had not gone to Horst Vessel's funeral, but he goes to his grave and he addresses a memorial service in the evening and they play the funeral march from Gotterdammerung from Wagner and they have uh, the stage is all set with laurel trees, with candelabras and with a huge larger than life size portrait of Vessel. So even as he is doing his kind of, you know, behind the scenes shenanigans and all that kind of stuff, he is also out on the public stage promoting this this Nazi martyr. Well, doesn't that capture something about the Nazi rise to power? That it's the combination of the backstairs, back yeah, room, absolutely. intriguing. Yeah. And then these sort of lurid, pseudo-religious theatrical spectacles. So yeah, so with that so from that moment the, the deal is done and on the thirtieth of January, uh Hitler goes into Hindenburg's apartment at the Reich Chancellery. Wilhelmstrasse, if you remember from the first episode, yeah, very, the palace very first thing, yeah, renovated, and they do the deal. And Hindenburg says, "And, and now, gentlemen, forwards with God." And um, somebody says to von Papen about that time, "How can you work with these vulgar, stupid, utterly inexperienced, extremely violent sort of common men, thugs, thugs?" And Papen says, "You are wrong." We've hired him and how wrong he was. Okay. So thank you, Dominic. We will look at the Reichstag fire and how Hitler outsmarts Papen and Hindenburg and everybody and establishes his regime until he ends up dead outside his bunker in 1945. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.